happiness, I think, is, uh, Terry says, contentment, but feeling that you are part of society, that you're contributing to society, and that you matter to other people. And I think that's what drives happiness in people and contentment in people, that they are contributing to the greater good in society and that they're respected by their peers. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Our guests on today's show are Michael Ottenweller and Terry Hansen of Ottenweller Company, a medium-sized fabrication and machining company headquartered in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Ottenweller is a 108-year-old fourth-generation family business. I spoke with Michael and Terry about how a family business can grow and thrive for over a century and how the company continues to find quality new talent. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I am very honored to be here today with Michael Ottenweller. Project Manager and President Emeritus of Ottenweller Company. Correct. And Terry Hansen, Human Resources Manager at the company. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for being on. Hi, Noah. Glad to be on. Thanks, Noah. Thanks for having us. I guess the inspiration for you contacting me was when you, you read my dad's blog about where have all the men gone. That sort of struck a, a you know the idea of you know what what you guys are have been seeing trying to get a labor force together and yeah. you know i think there's a a widespread impression that the younger generation has deserted manufacturing or uh might be a little slow to grow up and uh we're we're uh terry and uh the operation at ottenweller company is attacking that problem from a couple of different aspects and uh, thought we would talk about that. So your dad's article really piqued my interest. And I think we're doing some things that can, uh, that we thought would be positive to share with you and talk about. Perfect. Okay. Just to get started, I want to know just a brief description of Ottenweller. What, What is this company? What is your company? Well, Ottenweller Company was started by my grandfather, Ed Ottenweller, in about 1916 as a blacksmith shop in downtown Fort Wayne, Indiana. At the time, my grandfather was about 26 or 27 years old. 
And uh, as a young man, he had gone off to Montana to be a cowboy and a, and a blacksmith and figured his chances of finding uh, someone to marry were better back home than they were in Montana. Uh, in, the, in the hot spot of Fort Wayne. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bozeman, Montana. Bozeman, Montana was not uh, not the, the place to meet your bride. Oh, that's so funny. The last guy I interviewed was from Bozeman, Montana. He's a machinist in Bozeman, Montana. It's like the fastest growing city in the country now. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, my grandfather came back and, and uh, he actually was a, uh, a son of a blacksmith as well. My great grandfather was a blacksmith. Uh, but uh, my grandfather started the company and he ran the operation uh, through the transition from horse and buggy into automotive. And uh, he oversaw that era and into World War II. And after World War II, my dad, who was a general electric engineer, um, left GE and went to work with my grandfather. And then my dad ran the company. So what were they making? At General Electric in Fort Wayne. No, what was Ottenweiler making? Ottenweiler Company at that time, uh, through World War II, was making truck parts for International Harvester, who had a truck plant in Fort Wayne. And that was part of the war effort. And they did work for General Electric, was making specialty motors uh, at that point in time for military applications. But um, Mm -hmm. after World War II, uh, we really, we focused on uh, a few main things. Uh, Construction was very strong. So we were aligned with some mechanical contractors in the area and supplied fabricated parts to them. Uh, We did work for International Harvester after the war and continued to do so until, oh, the late 1990s, actually. Um, And uh, and then because the uh, travel trailer and the RV industry was really getting started in the 50s, uh, we began putting trailer hitches on cars and trucks and doing mm. that type of thing. We no longer do that, but uh, uh, that was really uh, uh, something that I participated in as a teenager, uh, working on those vehicles to install wiring harnesses and that type of thing. So um, we were well known in Fort Wayne for putting trailer hitches on people's cars that they would use then to go travel uh the country with wow wow so uh, since 1916 over 100 years so you know family business a lot of family businesses interested in this podcast people listening so you are the third generation there's a fourth generation involved now correct my son uh, david ottenweller is company president now and then my nephew, my sister's son, who's been in, uh, my sister's been in the business with me since uh, the early uh, 1980s. And her son is now vice president, Kevin Dwyer uh, of the company. And how old are they? Uh, David is 42 and Kevin is 40. Wow. I'm 42. Well, wow, interesting. Um, you have 11 siblings. Yes. 10 siblings. Yeah, there Ten were siblings. 11 of us in our family. Uh, five brothers, five sisters. Uh, I was number six out of the 11. My siblings are uh, professional people, doctors, lawyers, school teachers, uh, college professors, that type of thing. I was the one who was most interested in 
the blacksmith shop, the mechanical end of things. And mm-hmm. I went to Purdue in mechanical engineering and uh, I finished an associate's degree in the Fort Wayne campus. You'd say, though, you, you weren't big on school. I was not a great student in high school and college, uh, Mm -hmm. and not for lack of smarts, more for lack of direction. And and I think the way I learned was more hands-on, getting in and taking things apart and seeing how they worked and, uh, you know, doing my problem solving in that that, uh, arena. It's so interesting, though, that with so many other people in the family, you and only two other siblings went into the business. And I would have expected, you know, one of the first five. Did any of the first five at least try the business? Um, not really in any. In no. I mean, did your, did high your, school. Did your dad try to discourage it? No. My, you know, my mother, who was really the driving force for education in the family, uh, you know, really pushed all of us to do well in school and to go to college and, and to finish. My mother, uh, truthfully, um, after having 11 children, went back to college, finished her degree when she was 56, wow. uh, became a school guidance counselor and worked until she was 73 years old as a guidance counselor at one of the um, local county high schools. This is uh, your mother, you said. This is my mother. So my mother was very big on education, and and she really pushed us kids to make sure that uh, we stayed with it, with education. So I was a little bit of an outlier out of the group, and uh, but, uh, you know, that I think that gave me an appreciation for perhaps some of these younger people who are coming out of high school and are not quite sure what they want to do yet but aren't done learning. And, um, and that was certainly the case with me. But you, in addition, though, to being like a hands-on learner and being into the engineering, I mean, it sounds like you, you know, you were business oriented as well, you know. And I think that's where uh, the strength of having a couple siblings in the business with me really pays off. So, you know, I always was the one in the business that figured out how to make the parts, how to get the correct machinery to make the parts, you know, how to lay out the shop, how to do, uh, how to read the blueprints and, and, and do that end of it. My sister, uh, who was a uh, graduate of IU, she was the one who took care of the office and the money and that type of thing, the accounting end of it. And then uh, youngest brother in the family, uh, Gary, he took care of sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. So we each had our own very distinct areas of the business that we took. And your father was still the president. He was in charge at the beginning. Uh, yeah, my, my father exited the business in 1985. And that's when my youngest brother came into the business. So at that point in time, he, was, he saw that we were moving the business way beyond what he was interested in doing. Uh, with new equipment and dipping our toe in the CNC world and mm-hmm. that type of thing. And he was very content to step away. Interesting. So how did you guys decide for you to become the one in charge? I mean, you might have, you guys have equal share of the company? 
So I had the benefit of being a birth order coming uh, before my sister and my youngest brother. Uh, And, you know, so I I was in the business much longer than either one of those two uh, had my dad, because I was in early in the business, felt I should have the majority share of the business. And so uh, that's how we started out. But as you know, um, did you have to buy him out or did you um, just were you, were, did you just inherit it? We did buy him out. It was very much a, uh, a handshake. We did have a written agreement, but, it, you know, the basis of the agreement really was we would keep him in a paycheck until he didn't need a paycheck any longer. There was a lot of trust involved uh, on my father's part that we could do what we were trying to do by growing the business and modernizing it. And I think for family businesses to sustain themselves through the generation, uh, the trust factor is is a big, big deal. Because if you do it uh, solely based on financial returns and wherewithal, it's very, very difficult to do unless the business is making significant returns. Okay. So what are you saying then as far as working on trust? We, you know, when my father exited, we had a very basic agreement with him to keep him in a paycheck as he aged. And, uh, and we did that. And everything turned out very, very well for everybody. And that became the basis of the, the agreement between moving from the third to the fourth generation, that there had to be some delayed gratification, delayed payment for third generation while the fourth generation really dug in and was starting to remake the business yet again. So if you could just walk me through a little bit what that means, though, like when you're quote unquote buying each other out and there's delayed gratification and it's on the honor system, just can you specify that a little bit how that works? Well, without getting into any of the gory details, I think it means that for my sister and I who have children in the business, that we were okay with waiting to get some of our payout for our stock somewhere down the road. And because we had children in the business, uh, a key component was that we did some gifting of some of that stock to the children so that the business was not overly burdened with a large amount of debt. Uh, Really not a good strategy to try and pass the business down to the next generation and saddle them with a insurmountable amount of debt. And so we didn't want that to happen. What do you do about the other kids, though? Did, did you have to, like, pay them out or? Yeah, other than my youngest brother, none of the other siblings had any interest in the Wait, business. Are all your kids then in the business or no? No, I have two sons, two daughters. I have a son who, my oldest son, runs his own company, which is a construction business. And Right. So how do you do it where, like, you're, in essence, sort of giving a piece of the business to one son? Do you feel, like, obligation to sort of compensate the other family member? Yeah, there's a, there's a little. We, we've, uh, we've managed that within the family. Okay. Maybe I'm getting too personal, but... You know, yeah, you know. where we feel it's it's equitable. Uh, I don't think any of 
certainly none of my children feel as though they've been cut well, out of it. Right. But I mean, for instance, with you and having so many siblings, I'm just curious how that would work. You know, again, most of my siblings are very successful in their own right. Yeah. When we first got started, you know, when I came into the business, no, we literally were in the same blacksmith shop that my grandfather and my dad had operated out of. Uh, the blacksmith shop at that point in time was nearly a hundred years old. It was so you weren't you weren't like some bohem with you weren't it wasn't like this no we were not this was not a big operation you know this was you know 10 12 15 people at the most and now how many people do you have 200 at, at this point in time we have uh, almost 200 people very uh, impressive and a plant in uh, mount airy north carolina interesting and would you say that you're growing up with so many siblings has helped you in working together with family members, shaped who you are, sort of? I, I think so. Um, you know, I think in a big family, um, you know, there's just an expectation that everybody chips in and does their part. Certainly in our family, the older kids help to take care of the younger kids. And, and that was true even through me and, you know, taking, helping to take care of my younger siblings. So uh, there, there was a, an expectation that uh, you all had to do your part and that nobody was special, I, sh- I should say. So, yeah, I think in a big family, I think there's a dynamic of you have to figure out how to get along and you have to learn how to give a little bit. Interesting. It's interesting you'd say that. I mean, you hear about other families and succession and, you know, there's bitterness, there's complication, there's, I mean, even I know, like our family business, you know, it can get complicated. Yeah. So it's very impressive. Do you have any advice for somebody with a family business and who has other generations or siblings or whatever to to make it work? You know, um, we did engage with a family business counselor for a couple of years as we were working through some of our discussions. And that was helpful. We had the benefit of having a very good uh, senior level business consultant advisor who helped us with crafting what the financial structure could look like. And then we had a good legal team that, that helped us write some of the agreements. But I think the the most important thing is to have good, positive discussions and try and leave the emotions out of it and try to work towards a common goal. Yeah. Well, emotions and family, they just go hand in hand, you know. Absolutely, they do. There's no doubt about it. No doubt about it. What's been one of the high points of your career? And I mean, you've been in this business, what, 50 years yeah. Yeah. As far as your career or what you've seen, the com- how you've seen the company change? You know, seeing as I was always the technical guy, I am just kind of wowed by <clears throat> how the technology has changed since I came into the business. When I was at Purdue, I mean, we were still working on all manual machines. What kind of machines are you guys using for reference for people? 
you know, at this point in time, we have uh, three uh, 10 kilowatt fiber lasers. We have CNC press brakes. We have large horizontal boring mills. We have bridge mills. We have a number of Haas uh, equipment in terms of VMCs and uh, and lays. Mm-hmm. We employ uh, many robotic welding cells. Um, we do painting. We do, uh, uh, in addition to the painting, we do assembly. So we make complete modules for our customers yeah. and ship them to their factories so that they can just bolt the modules onto a tractor frame and hook up the wiring harnesses, and they're ready to go. Right, and it's construction, it's um, agriculture. Right, construction, agriculture, some medical, but the bulk of our work goes into the construction equipment industry. Listeners, first, I got to tell you, I'm so grateful for you guys tuning in. I know we have lots of competition out there. Freakonomics, This American Life, Joe Rogan. Also, I just want to let you know, if you have guest ideas or questions for me or Lloyd, we'd love for you to reach out. And if you want to talk about future advertising opportunities, we're very happy to talk to you anytime. Feel free to email me at noah at graphpinkert.com. That's N-O-A-H at G-R-A-F-F-P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. And now back to the episode. Terry, it seems like you're very active as the human resources person at the company. This, you know, the topic everybody can just always talks about is my one plant problem is how to find skilled people. If only I had more people, I could buy more machines. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. You're in Fort Wayne. It's a small place. But at the same time, like, clearly... You guys are finding a good pipeline of people. Tell me, what are you guys doing to keep a good staff, a good workforce? Well, I've, um, you know, first of all, I've, I've got a background in, you know, not only the government, but in organizing. You know, I had worked in political campaigns before, worked in Barack Obama's uh, campaigns in 2007. And What were you doing in his campaign? Well, first I was in uh, correspondence. I, I had been um, an intern first in the in uh, the Senate office, and then had worked in um, both his and Senator Durbin's offices. And then um, that's that's where I was when he announced he was running for president in, in February of 2007. And it was sort of a natural fit for me to move on over to headquarters and work in the correspondence office. But we pretty quickly, you know, liquidated the headquarters to get everybody out of the field. So I was doing field organizing in Iowa on the campaign. I just moved all across the country and was just uh, recruiting, um, you know, volunteers and recruiting new, uh, new voters to either vote or caucus, um, you know, uh, on behalf of Barack Obama. And um, so you're a mobilizer. Yeah. Yeah. So I did a lot of that. And uh, all across the country, you know, from from Iowa to Arizona, Texas, North Carolina, sort of following the campaign trail all the way through back to Colorado and then finally back to Chicago and then eventually to D.C. And, um, you know, my wife had talked me into moving out to the Fort Wayne area. She's from there. She's from here. Oh, yeah. Oh. And so she um, must really love. No, I'm just kidding. I, you know what? I said that. I, Michael, didn't I say that in my first interview with you? I said, you know, yeah. you said, why are you moving out here? I said, you know what? To be honest with you, you may all laugh here, but it was for love. 
um, but you know, it just brought that that spirit with me of of organizing out, out here, and I really just embraced the challenge. I mean, I you know, we've got a great group. Out in, you know, for me, it was a, the big piece was where I was going to land. Yeah, what what made you, and how did you end up at Odenweiler? Well, I was back in Chicago after serving in the Obama administration out of the presidential personnel office for years and for a period of time as White House liaison to the Department of Labor. So you were hiring people for Obama's staff? Yeah. Interesting. Cool. And then I had moved back to uh, to Chicago and um, opened up a little family business with my brother-in-law and sister, um, opened up a little neighborhood bar, which is something that we have in the, you know, in the sort of family lineage. What's it called? Where is it? So we've got two. The old family bar has been around forever. It's on Fullerton and Rockwell. It's called the Bob Inn um, uh-huh. that my grandparents started after World War II. Um, now my uncle Jimmy and Aunt Anne have been running it for many years, pr- pretty much for most of my life. And then we opened up um, uh, one at Montrose near Kedzie. It's actually um, Montrose and Troy, and it's called uh, Temple Stowe Pub. So a little just, neighborhood bar, and we just, you know, it was something that a bucket list thing that we, that we wanted to do. And was that a up. lucrative business? It was, <laughs> it was okay. You know, <laughs> it was, we sort of struggled through the COVID era, but by that time I was, I was out of it and had already moved out, out here to, to Fort Wayne, but it's still in the family and still it survived. All right. So and another full family credit, business. Full credit to my, to my sister for keeping it alive and making it survive through the, um, through the COVID era. Long story short i met my who would become my wife while i was there you know and running running that operation and um and uh you know we started taking some trips out to fort wayne um i had a mutual friend of kevin dwyer who's in the ownership group here and i I didn't know this but friend in chicago uh, who works in real estate he um you know i was telling him you know what Uh, we're looking at possibly moving to Fort Wayne. And uh, he said, I know somebody who lives in Fort Wayne. And, um, you know, Kevin had coincidentally gone to the Kellogg School of Management where I had worked for a period of time at Northwestern. And so we had a lot of things in common. We got connected. I came out here and I, you know, I took a tour, walked around the shop and I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the organization and these people. I met Michael's, uh, you know, just after I had met uh, Kevin and, um, you know, then I met Nancy, uh, later Gary, met David, and, and, and um, you know, we all just started talking after a couple of interview rounds. And I said, yeah, this is a place for me. Um, they agreed. And ever since then, I've been uh, trying to do my best to recruit new people, retain our, our good talent. Mm-hmm. That sort of your, leads into your question. So what were they doing before you got there, before you came and saved their ass? Well, I don't. Okay. I would say I saved it. I mean, it's been a time. <laughs> it, it's, uh, you know, we've had our, our struggles here through the COVID era and, and everything. And I think the company just had an excellent re- reputation for, uh, you know, now 100 in seven years by that point it was already 102 so they were doing a lot of things right which was mm-hmm. uh you know uh, they had uh, talent on the hr side joyce had run the hr operation here and was just a, a great trusted individual and had done these, you know, some of the recruiting and and all those types of things and you know i inherited uh, her operation here and took in everything that she had to tell me about the local community and about uh, what makes a lot of the people on in the shop floor here tick. And then I just, you know, went to work. I, I started by getting to know everybody in, in the floor here, I had individual half hour meetings with absolutely everybody on staff, just to get an idea of 
who everybody was and, you know, what their, what their sports teams were, what their interests were, what, you know, what brought them to work in uh, machining and welding manufacturing. And, and, and so, uh, and I use that as a sort of standard baseline to build on the uh, retention efforts and also to give me a, a good window into the types of things that I was going to be looking for out there. So what is the best way to retain people? You got to treat the whole operation like it is a garden that needs to be tended every day. You know, one of the big keys is uh, is in answering folks' desires for their own growth and development. You know, people, I think that people think that it's just, you know, the pay raise thing. It's, that's sort of a temporary fix that changes from, from one year to the next. Of course, we do those things, but, um, you know, it, it uh, growth and development on the training side, and then maintaining a company culture where people feel heard, people feel connected. Um, it's part of the reason why I, why I wanted to work here because we know everybody's names, even though we're at about 200 staff members, we do the company picnic thing, you know, and we get out there and we have uh, uh, local company events and things how like could that. You tell, how could you tell so quickly that it was a kind of culture that you I can tell quickly by walking around, by meeting Michael, meeting uh, the the family here, Kevin, and my early conversations with him, and then just touring the shop floor, walking around, seeing how individuals uh, interacted um, with Kevin on my uh, opening tour. He knew their name, you know, he was able to walk through and say, how you doing, Roy, you know, and talk about the, you know, the weekend and, and things like that. And it felt like an extension of, uh, of the Ottenmuller family company to me. And I said, you know what? I, I, I want to give this thing a shot. So, and Noah, could yeah. I step in on this too, on the retention you come thing? In, come in anyone, anytime you want. On the retention thing, I, you know, uh, I think it's important uh, in a business our size to keep your organization as flat as you possibly can not have a lot of different levels of management. And, uh, and Terry's exactly right. Very important that the family members are out on the shop floor on a daily basis. Hi, how are you? How's it going? What's going on? Uh, when there's problems in an area, um, you know, I think our responsibility out on the plant floor is to remove as many roadblocks as people have as you can to people being successful in their work life every single day. And, you know, uh, a lot of these roadblocks are not things that they create for themselves. It's things that the organization or, you know, the way a part is engineered might create uh, a lot of frustration, a lot of uh, problems for people. Management needs to remove that frustration and to see what gift every single person has that they can give to the organization and then to recognize them for that. Yeah. You know, yeah. nobody comes to work saying, gee, I wish I, I hope I do a crappy job today. Right. Uh, you know, everybody comes to work and they like, I need to get this done. I need to do my best and I need to feel good about what I'm doing. Yeah. And successful management means that you have to clear away the roadblocks so that people can get to that point with their jobs. How do you recognize careers. people? How do you show them recognition? It, it, you know, we've got a number of different ways that, that we do it. But I think the thing that's most important is to, you know, praise in public. You know, if somebody's doing a great job on something, uh, 
put out an email uh, to the entire organization. So-and-so helped us knock down this problem today. They had an idea. We have, uh, we have a uh, piece of homegrown software that we use that allows people to put in continuous improvement ideas. And, you know, they're evaluated on a regular basis. And if they're implemented based on, you know, how well they do, we reward them financially and we reward them with recognition in front of their peers. And, you know, I would say the recognition in, in front of their peers is much more important than the monetary. Monetary is good, too. Would you agree, Terry? I, I, I would agree there, Michael. And I also add that you know, a lot of people come into this line of work, into machining and, you know, engineering and welding because they are creative. They want to work with their hands. And so, um, sure, in a production environment, we've got those positions for those individuals who can come in, you know, uh, be in some repeat production for a period of time. But I think it's incumbent upon us, and this is one of the things that we try to do, is get folks working on new things. You know, we've got a lot of new products coming our way and, you know, a lot of sample work out there has brought in a lot of uh, new work from existing customers and new customers and making sure that we're plugging in um, these minds and and these hands on working on these things and doing some rotations, getting our cross training uh, uh, program, um, you know, fed and and keeping uh, people engaged. And I think that we find that those individuals who just want to, you know, punch the clock for the paycheck, as opposed to those people who, really, you know, want to be challenged, you know, they're few and far, far between. The, the people who want to work with their hands, they want to be challenged, uh, are the vast majority. So I, I, think, I agree yeah. with that, Terry. Almost every, to a person in our organization, they like it when you bring a challenge to them and say, we got a problem here, I need some help figuring this out. Yeah. And, you know, working with them as a coworker rather than you know, boss employee type relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Kind yeah. Of the 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 colleague, the the pat on the back, the acknowledgements, and and those things. But they also want to feel connected. And when you've got right. you know the ownership group, executive management, and others who are dire- directly involved in, out there, I think that helps to a great deal. And I was going to say, Noah, one of the things that I like to, th- you know, we all have challenges, certainly in HR, you know, we deal with all sorts of different problems all the time, you know, wherever you're going to go, people yeah. are going to have their issues and they come, uh, you know, to, to HR to manage them inside of work, outside of work, what have you. Um, and, I, you know, I get some satisfaction out of making sure that I've had an employee that feels that they've been heard uh, and that I have had some incremental degree of change, positive change for whatever it is that was the problem with them. But in particular, I feel like at the end of my day, I always have this time where I take a thought about, all right, who did I help today? And, and you know, if I didn't do enough, what can I do tomorrow to, to make sure I get that list down to make sure that I'm checking those boxes on those people? And I think having those touches makes a difference on, on yeah. the retention side. Well, it sounds like it gives you tremendous purpose as well. Yeah, it does. One of the things you're doing a lot of is going to, there's some decent trade schools in Fort Wayne. Yeah. So we've got um, community community colleges in the area, Ivy Tech in in particular, where we have 
very good programs. You know, new facilities at in the Fort Wayne uh, Ivy Tech branch for machining and welding. Um, you know, where we've got really good uh, deep roots with with that. Uh, community college. We've had people on staff here who have worked there or currently, you know, work there either part-time as teachers, welding instructors and whatnot, giving us a window into what talent looks like over there. And it's true, you know, those classes have not been overwhelmed, you know, with uh, admissions, with, with students interested in that. But that just makes the challenge for us to be able to identify, you know, why and to uh, find out how we can you know, work with community partners here or to let students know what opportunities look like in a place like this. Um, you know, so yes, we're engaging with the high schools. I've had many high school visits where we're just, you know, going into the, whether or not they have, um, you know, welding programs at, at the high school. <clears throat> you know, we're um, booking visits in there and then scheduling tours of our right. shop here to just let students, parents know, mm. hey, we're here. And then you have an internship program or how does that work? So we uh, traditionally have in internships in welding, uh, machining, engineering, sort of the, the natural bridge uh, from uh, where the, the schools have their have their programs mm -hmm. so that students can have some credit, essentially, and then, you know, also be paid. And so our internships are all all paid here. So we do those things. Um I just interviewed a, um, a candidate today who's um, going to be with us full time for the summer, um, and uh, we'll we're billing this as an internship because um, he could receive sort of on the job training credit through the college, and this is great, you know, because it gives him you know this experience where he's directly working on products and sure. employing some of the skills that that he's learned, and he's you know we're just waiting for him to turn eighteen. On, on Wednesday and we could officially hire him. What is, uh, what's a typical wage there? Well, we, we don't hire anybody here for under $17 an hour, um, you know, which in this area is pretty good for that starting That is Wayne. pretty good, I think, for Fort Wayne, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just climbs up from there. Uh, anybody who enters uh, the shop, if you have some experience, obviously you're coming in at a, at a higher wage. Um, but, and it all depends on, what skill level you bring in. And we do those assessments, Noah, when somebody comes on in and they interview, I'll literally um, link them up with one of our uh, certified welding inspectors out there or one of the um, more seasoned, um, you know, top level fabricators. So when somebody comes in, they've gotten some training though already, usually? Not usually th these days. We're, we're bringing a, a lot of people who have limited to no experience. It's great if somebody does have some experience, but, um, you know, our organization is equipped to be able to, to assess and train and develop on welding and machining in, 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 in all of our divisions, actually. But I mean, how, so I guess my question is, you know, you like hiring people from the trade school. Yeah. How much is if a kid goes to the trade school and comes in, do they just does it mean just they they have a head start? Is that kind of? Yeah, they've got yeah. a head start. For sure. Yeah, they've got mm -hmm. some exposure to blueprints already. They've, uh, you know, utilized 
um, inspection tools. They, um, you know, have a, a fundamental understanding of what the machines are or how to operate a welder. They may have been exposed a little bit to programming on the machining side. Um, and, and those things only help because then they could communicate right off the bat. I mean, they'll complete a training checklist, right. You know, more quickly than others will. You know, sure, typically sure. we want the first training checklist completed within three weeks. Anybody coming out of those schools, they're done within a handful of days usually. But on the other hand, Terry, um, it, it, it's really important that we nurture and care for these young people when they first hit the shop floor and give them, they're pretty green in terms really of their overall skills. And um, it, it's really important that we have a mentor with them, somebody to help them when they bump up against a problem. We have in-house training programs in welding, machining, even engineering uh, the, that we work with young people on. So when they come in, um, it, we, we've got to uh, we've got to take good care of them. Yeah. We've got to make sure they're safe. Number one. That's our first priority. And right. then number two, we need to make sure that we're giving them the technical knowledge and backup that they need uh, yeah. to one, do their job. One thing I'm very interested in, and we, we, we talked about this the other day, is hiring people with experience from other jobs. Um, you know, it's there's this book I find very interesting called range. And it's about how when people cross train from one job to the other, they come in and it really helps them to excel in this other new occupation. What have you experienced with that? So you've, you've hired people from other industries. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, uh, a good, a good chunk of our workforce has come from other industries. Does that work well? Or is it kind of like, weird because they're trying to figure out the culture or some of both some of both some of both I mean, and and sometimes it works out very well um and sometimes we're just giving somebody an opportunity and they realize you know in their first 90 days or first six months and hey, maybe this isn't it isn't for me in fact i've you know seen both of those scenarios within the last six months uh, here and um and so sometimes yeah just like hiring anybody it is a little bit of a roll on the uh, roll of the dice. We try to check as many boxes as we sure. can in the door. You know, we've got a basic, you know, um, reading comprehension uh, assessment when they come in, a basic uh, multiple choice math assessment when they come in, um, and then you know if they check those boxes. And, um, you know, the references are good. For instance, we hired a, a gentleman who was a line cook at a couple of the restaurants around here, and he just had excellent references. The types of references that were saying, if it doesn't work out there, you tell him to come right back here, you know, but he wanted to work wow. with his hands. And he wanted to work in, um, in, in machining and in uh, manufacturing. So uh, we gave him an opportunity, and that was in um, late 2017. Now he's our team lead over the the cutting division which includes the plasmas and and these um, fiber optic lasers that you know michael was talking about yeah uh, the, you know and he's just doing a, a fantastic job just this week i had um an individual who i recruited from one of the big hardware stores around here he wasn't entirely satisfied with his job he had worked in the, the shipping you know just uh, moving products around on uh, with uh, with his the dolly and, and whatnot, and I just saw how he was interacting with the staff there, and he helped me load a, a freezer into the back of our, my family's van, and I just started telling him. I said, 
you know, do you like your job? And he just said, no, I don't. <laughs> and so, you know, I just sparked a conversation. I said, why don't you come in and take a tour with us? I'll, I'll show you what we got going on over here. I like the way that you were interacting with your colleagues uh, there. And I just had a, you know, a, a positive you know, got feeling about the guy because I, uh, I said, come on and, and, and give us a tour. Well, he started this last Monday over here in our uh, laser area. He had not worked in manufacturing before. I brought him in just a couple hours ago, Noah, here, and we do our end of week one check-in where we have about 25 questions where we just go through, hey, you know, all the safety questions, you know, you know where to go in mm. case we, you know, there's a uh, what in case there's a, you know, an evacuation or, you know, do you know where to locate your nearest fire extinguisher or those types right. of things, the, the, all the safety questions. But we also ask, is there anything that you wanted to achieve in your opening week here that, you know, you, you haven't done and how, how can we help you to achieve those types of questions that make sure that they feel engaged? And they what do feel, people say when you ask them that? You know, it's in this instance, it was um, he really didn't have any problems. He said, I'm liking the folks that I work with. I, f- I feel like I can approach anybody and, um, you know, they're patient and they're taking their time. Sometimes you hear uh, questions about, you know, I've got trouble getting into this account or that account. Um, it, those are pretty typical. And then sometimes you say, well, y- y- I'll hear, well, the job is much more physical than I thought it would be, yeah. you know, and um, we steer that conversation a couple of different How ways. How flexible are your hours? Are they just very traditional 10-hour days? I would say. Although, you know, we we have had to be more flexible here lately um, for certain family situations and child care issues. And yeah. uh, I, think, I think every business has had to do that. They've had to find ways to be a little more flexible. Well, and the standard is changing, so... And it is. No, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Um, just a few other questions. I often like to to ask people when they think of happiness, what, what do they think of? So why don't, why don't you start, Terry, and then we'll, we'll go to you, Michael. I've often had this this thought happiness to me is an emotion like sadness. You know, you can feel happy one day, you can feel sad another day. And I feel like um, I prefer to center around contentment and that issue that I had talked about earlier, <clears throat> the things that uh, bring me satisfaction and, and contentment tend to be uh, in how it is that I've affected other people's lives. Uh, yeah. Um, play. Yeah. And um, I'm going to answer quickly. My iPad is on 10% battery, Noah. So. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> does, that make, does that make you content? <laughs> no. That, we're that makes me a little... Well, actually, it's going to give me a hard out here. Anyhow. Yeah, just go until we finish or it's done. That's fine. Yeah, there we go. out. You know, happiness, I think, is, uh, Terry says, contentment. But feeling that you are part of society that you're contributing to society and that you matter to other people uh, and i think that's what drives happiness and contentment in people that they are contributing to the greater good in society and that they're respected by their peers wow very good uh do, do either of you have anything else you'd like to say to the people of the world this is your chance. This is broadcast everywhere. I would say, you know what? People should 
Check out Fort Wayne. I'm, I've been pleasantly surprised here. Yeah, you, somebody who's you, lived you, in Chicago and uh, D.C. and, you know, spent uh, some time in Australia. And, uh, you know, what should, what should they check out Fort Wayne besides uh, besides Ottenweiler, of course? Well, yeah, you got to take a tour if you come here, of course. No, no brainer. But um, there's just a lot of investment. And, you know, from, you know, my background, um, a lot of, you know, just progressive minds. And, and that was sort of refreshing to me. I mean, I, I didn't know Indiana very well um, uh, until, you know, I started spending a lot of time here. And just like the, the folks in ownership here, found a lot of like, like-minded, interesting, smart uh, uh, people here. Downtown, uh, there's a revitalization. I, I like how you're so open-minded, Terry. I mean, you, you, you're from, you're an urban kid. You're from Chicago. You've like lived everywhere, worked for Obama. Now you're like moved to Fort Wayne, just like, yeah, well, I mean, why not? And I, I really appreciate that. I think I think it's very it's impressive. And we are really, really happy that Terry is living in Fort Wayne. And we thank his wife, Mallory, for that. Yeah, that's so, right. Well, yeah. we've been we've been nesting. We've got three kids now. No. So, you know, a four year old, three year old and, and a six month old. So, wow. And yeah, so we're, we've been busy with that. And I can't understate that the property values in Fort Wayne compared to, you know, the 44th Ward of Chicago are quite different. You can get a mansion here, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, what about what about you? Before your computer runs out, before your iPad runs out of energy, what do you have to say? No, I, I think, you know, uh, as I'm getting older in life, I'm analyzing this yin and yang of competition versus collaboration. And uh, from my perspective, it looks to me like collaboration produces far better results than competition, even though I think competition, you should do a whole podcast on that, on, you know. Season about competition and collaboration? Competition versus collaboration. Interesting. Who would you suggest I interview? Um, Michael and I all come back. Tom Friedman. (laughs) Tom Friedman. Yeah. So I think in my parting thoughts are, I've also come to learn that everybody's got a gift to give. Um, It's really incumbent, really important for employers to find what that gift is and get people to a place where they can can succeed uh, and show that gift. Awesome. Thanks, guys. No, great talking with you. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Music